0: This is Dr. Booker again. I just wanted to add on some information that I think faculty and staff need to be aware of as it relates to students, faculty, and staff. So currently, we are in the midst of Ramadan. Um, for 2021, and so Ramadan is the Muslim month of fasting, and practicing Muslim students, faculty, and staff will be fasting from dawn until dusk, which usually could be anywhere from 4.30 a.m. to 8.30 p.m., and basically what fasting means is that there's no food and no water, and so Ramadan celebrates. Um, celebrations often include prayers late into the night. It is, a, it is unusual to be up past midnight for prayers and then get up at 3.30 4 a.m. to eat before dawn and pray, and so basically Ramadan 2021 will last approximately from April 13th through May 12th, and Ramadan is scheduled on the lunar calendar so it moves each year and so again I just want everyone to remember and to take it take this into account when we look at our um, testing schedules and assignments that students are having due towards the end of the month beginning of end of April and beginning of May, that these students, faculty, and staff members may be tired, hungry, and dehydrated um, in your classes and in your workplaces, especially uh, if they are in the late um, afternoon. So again, just in keeping with inclusivity and just being aware of some of our religious practices that we have on campus, just keep keep that in mind. Um, So if a student, faculty, staff member approaches you about um, being tired or dehydrated or um, excessively hungry during this time, um, that's probably because it's due to their fasting for Ramadan. Thank you.
1: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mercer Mondays. This is your host, Emma Kraft. And today we're going to be talking about how professors can be allies in regards to diversity here at Mercer. So I have a great group of people here with me today. And before we get started, I'll go ahead and have everyone introduce themselves.
2: Hi,
3: everyone. My name is Kenia Kirksey. I'm a first year biology major here at Mercer University.
4: Hello, I'm Carol Bogros Director of Pre-Health Professions Advising.
5: I'm Kevin Cummings and I teach in Communication Studies and I'm an Affiliated Faculty Member in Women and Gender Studies.
2: I'm Laura Simon. I'm an Assistant Professor in Sociology and also an Affiliated Faculty Member in Women and Gender Studies.
1: Awesome. Thank you guys so much. So to get us started, I want to hear a little bit about your background. Um, your journey coming to Mercer, um, how long you've been here, and especially I'm interested in were you aware of Macon's deep racial divide before moving here? Um, like if you aren't from Macon or Georgia, what did you first think when you moved here about um, what it'd be like living in Macon?
4: Okay, I'll go ahead and start. Okay. Um, we moved here, my husband and I, who's who's in the chemistry department, we moved here for his job in '97. Okay. And um, I grew up in California and then spent time in Texas and Pennsylvania. And I, I think I've always been aware of racial divides just by, I guess that must my must been my mother okay. <laughs> my, um, mostly who, who kind of taught me to respect all people. I remember she dragged me with her to work in the first head Start program downtown San Diego. and that was really fun. <laughs> so um, But yeah, when I first got here, I expected the worst, Mm. um, just because of movies and TV and and whatnot, and I I guess I must have decided that I would try to counteract that, Mm. because I was adamant about having my kids go to public school and interact with everybody, regardless of race or socioeconomic status,
5: Interesting. What about you, Dr. Cummings? Uh, So I came here in 2004, and prior to being here, I was in Denver, Colorado. And I worked as a drug and alcohol treatment counselor in Denver, Colorado for a while while I was in graduate school. And the house that I worked at had racial problems. And so um, we had skinheads, blood scripts, and GKIs, which was a Latinx gang, gangster killing Incas. And they all lived together in a halfway house. And so I was already somewhat accustomed to um, Denver having its own racial divide and um, as a lot of big cities do and so um, a lot of moving here was sort of uh, exactly what i had sort of expected which is america has a race problem Mm -hmm. and it's not something that um, blue states or blue cities avoid somehow magically right Mm -hmm. i think i was aware that um, it manifests itself in different ways Um, it was a strange experience moving here because Um, A lot of my colleagues, who I think are wonderful, wonderful people, um, kept giving me really awkward advice when I first moved here about the schools. They'd say, "Okay, um, you've got young kids. You're really going to want to research these schools. It's an important decision. You may want to spend a good bit of time thinking about the private schools in the area. Um, It may be what's best for your kids. And um, the, the sort of the, you know, The awkwardness of not saying there are racial problems in schools in Macon, um, but instead trying to find the polite workarounds to say um, public schools here are unusual. And my wife's a public school teacher. So like Dr. Bokros, we were deeply invested in the idea of trying to support public education. And um, my wife taught at McKibben Lane and then at Alexander II for most of her time here. And so um, it was important to us that our kids go to public schools. Um, but I just remember the the awkwardness of it. That, um, And I think um, that may just be a marker for a lot of conversations, that we don't have the right communicative tools that we need. And so we have awkward conversations where um, we try to find polite ways to say things instead of just saying, Macon has real problems, we need to work on them, and there are anti-racist ways to take these up. Uh, we end up sometimes trying to find ways to kind of move around them. Um, my, my, my own personal background is I came from a military family. My dad was in the military, so we got moved around a lot. And um, the military is a politically conservative culture, but it's a very diverse one. And so um, I remember in high school, um, I was in Texas at the time, and uh, my dad was stationed at Fort Bliss, and we had Midland Lee come to play a football game and they played the national anthem and at the end of it they played dixie right so right at the end of the national anthem attached to it was the right and they're all like and, and the south will rise again right oh, wow. And um, and my dad was absolutely horrified. He was like, "Hey, I think everyone should literally walk out." And that was, um, you know, that was a strange moment for me. So I grew up um, in a family that was very much aware of racism and saw it as a problem. Um, but it was also politically conservative, and that was kind of unusual because um, once I got to grad school, the, the anti-racism tended to be a little bit more on the left instead of on the right. Um, and I suppose I don't know. It's uh, with our families, it's finding ways to um, say, being anti-racist can happen from all directions, mm-hmm. and we need to build a huge, big anti-racist coalition.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting that you guys have similar experiences having already been aware of it beforehand, mm-hmm. but then coming to make it in that, whole well, public school debate, I think is very telling that people are aware that these issues exist, but maybe don't want to you know, address them head on, like kind of beat around the bush. So. Very interesting.
4: I'm the oldest person here, and I was in middle school when busing started. Well, I guess wow. I must have been in elementary, but when I got to middle school, we had busing. And so I was very aware of wow. the, the issues. Yeah.
2: So I am originally from Nebraska, um, which, no. We find it on a map. It's right in center. Um, <laughs> yes, we have electricity. We have all the things. Um, <laughs> yes, my first job was detasseling corn. So some of the you know expectations are real. Um, so that's I was born and raised in Nebraska. We did not move around. Um, we you know were for there. That's where my family was. We had relatives in Iowa, and that's about as far as we went in terms of kind of family. Um, Our big vacation was actually to Colorado, (laughs) Um, you know, and so I grew up in what I have since realized a bit of a bubble. And so I am a trained sociologist. So I can't say that when I took the job four years ago, I'm in my fourth year at Mercer, um, that I wasn't aware of racial issues because I, but I was aware in a more abstract sense, right? So I was aware from an academic right sense, and certainly while I was at university, universities tend to be more diverse, right? So even in Nebraska, which is predominantly white, like depending on the area, sometimes ninety about ninety percent white, um, and then there are pockets of you know more diverse areas. But even that, right? Um, so it's a, a very um, racially white state, a, a very conservative state, um, and so I grew up. Kind of surrounded by that without a lot of questioning because everywhere I looked it was just people who looked like me right and people who felt like me I went to a private school that was faith-based because that's where my mom my mom was a kindergarten teacher for 40 years um bless her Uh, and she you know so she was doing that and so that was you know and so I was at a small school in an already very you know homogenous as we think about it from a so you know, everything's kind of looks the same, thinks the same. Um and I just didn't have a lot of and I it's it's not a proud thing to say, but I will admit until I went on to college, just didn't really critically think much about other people's experiences. It just felt like everyone, you know, the biggest drama was, you know, how things were going to turn out for me and if I was going to the University of Nebraska or if I was going to really branch out and go to the University of Texas at Austin. Right. That was like the That was my defining, right? And so I just, and I think some of that's the time. So I graduated high school in 2003. And I do think there's been a shift, a really important, powerful one in younger generations thinking more critically, right? Even in these very homogenous spaces. Um, So, but we were not necessarily between the area, the region and my cohort, we were not necessarily thinking about race or sexuality or gender. Um, There was a religious, right, kind of private education slant to that as well. Again, the bubble, right? Um, So I went on to university and had friends for the first time that were not white um, and started to go, oh, you know, wait, right? A lot of what I told actually isn't true. And so when I share this with students, I tend to be pretty open about the story. Again, not as a point of pride, but as a point of, I had all these thoughts about groups, but I hadn't actually met anyone, which is just so maddening to me now, right? But I also think it's important that we recognize all the ideas we get about people in our heads before we ever interact with them. Um, And from a sociological perspective, right? That's how we get stereotypes, that's how we get prejudice, right? That's how we get implicit bias. Um, And certainly, right, my university experience was unpacking so much of that. And I had a lot of gracious people along the way. Um, Be patient with me. Um, And not that I, again, I think we think sometimes of racism as this explicitly terrible, right, shouting derogatory slurs, and absolutely not, right? I was very much of the mind of, well, I'm nice to everyone, right, Nebraska-nice, we call it, (laughs) Um, right? I put a smile on my face, and I'm friendly, and I always hold the door open, and how could I, right? had all these ideas right and thoughts about differences that actually right, are just that are ideas and so it was a really powerful shift in university um and honestly that whole idea and that critical thought is what drew me into sociology i was like oh there's a discipline where i can actually study this mm-hmm. um and so long i mean my version of the short story because my stories <laughs> are always long um so sociology eventually uh, brought me in there's a whole lot of life in between But eventually, I firmly rooted myself in sociology. I had not always planned to go to graduate school. uh, But then, when I went on to graduate school, I actually started my studies as a sociology of family scholar. I was really interested in transitions between families and trajectories. But they figured out I was kind of good at teaching, um, which is cool for a graduate student right because there were other things that i felt like i wasn't quite great at but i was like okay to... and so one of the harder classes to teach at nebraska because remember all those ideas people have right about coming in um all this kind of bubble that many of our students kind of came to the university of nebraska was the sociology of race and ethnicity class and so they said hey graduate student you have your <laughs> master's now go ahead and teach this 90 student class um and I went, okay uh, Because that's what graduate students do. Um, And that is probably where I had learned so much, certainly in my personal life, I had unpacked all these things. But once I taught it and once I saw further how students who did not identify as white were processing processing not being white in this very white setting, right? Even in diverse spaces, it was very homogenous again, right? Expectations and hearing more about my students' experiences. from my colleagues' experiences, right? So I really started to unpack the nuance, right, at that moment. And so when, right, so all of that, then I get the job offer for Macon, Georgia. And suddenly everyone in Nebraska has an opinion about Mm. Georgia. (laughs) And especially if they Googled Macon, Georgia, then they have even stronger opinions, (laughs) right? And so by that point, I was, well, two things. One, I had unpacked a lot, and I understood the risk of overgeneralizing. So I was pretty adamant, like, no right (laughs) no shut it down um and i also was a little bit like i just pushed push back right i just wanted to push back on narratives and so it was very much but it and i will say it wasn't just race there was also this um southern education stereotype Mm -hmm. that really came through do you really think you can teach students from the south right so it's just like together right from my colleagues it was like oh all those conservative students right and from my family it was like oh making sure you know and so it was like this competing ideology and I was like listen Mercer's great it's a great fit for me it's gonna be good and at that point I had a son who was let's see was he entering middle school I think he was entering seventh grade when we moved here um and a daughter who was going to be in pre k so for and we honestly we would to Georgia, like free pre-k like sign us up uh <laughs> <laughs> so we, that we thought we had another year um and an infant so when we came into Georgia we had a whole crew um and I too just like Dr. Cummings got all the messages about schools and I'll be honest they they worked in the sense of like having come blind right so I'd never been to this area I'd visited once for my little like visit and then they had we come back with my spouse to do kind of like job right housing things but all the messages we got about school I mean it was overwhelming I say they worked in the sense that it made me anxious right and mm-hmm. made me go am I doing right and so since moving here I would say my eyes have been open in several ways right um I think it's um there's a really wonderful TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. Yeah, so <laughs> I have, like, everyone's seen it at this point. Apparently they're showing it in high school, so they're really bursting cool. my bubble because I love to show it in the intro. <laughs> um, but there's a point where uh, the author says, um, and I'm going to spare me trying to pronounce her name because I try every time, um, we'll say her a la- DTA, I think is the correct in the final. Um, But she goes on to say, the danger of stereotypes is is that they're not true. There's a single story, right? So some of the narrative around Macon, right? There's truth to it, right? There are issues with poverty, right? There are intersections of issues with race, but no one talks kind of like what's already been discussed about the actual root of any of those issues. It's just, don't go there because of this, don't go there because of this, but no, like, okay, but what could we do, right? Or why is mm-hmm. it that, right? And as a sociologist, I was like, but why, right? Like, Concentrated poverty does not just like create itself. No one wants to live in an area of concentrated poverty, right? That's not a choice people actively opt into. It's, I mean, it's not wonderful, but we know systemic cycles, right? Systemic cycles of poverty, this idea of expensive to be poor, intersections of systemic inequality, systemic racism, access to housing and wealth accumulation. And we never, I mean, certainly in academic spaces, we have those conversations and I see community members having those conversations, but when people are moving into Macon, it's don't go here, right? Don't go there. Mm. Avoid that. And I think this seems for students, right? Absolutely. Oh, um, I all end there because I will take up our entire
1: time.
3: But <laughs> Everybody, um, like when I told them I was thinking about coming to Mercer, they're like, "Oh, Mercer!" And then, like I was like, "Yeah, it's in Macon. they're like, "Oh, Macon. So like, <laughs> so, like I like that duality. I'm like, "Okay, yeah, that's such a great school, but like." you know, be careful, don't leave campus after this time. But don't go to like certain areas, especially not by yourself, because you might like run into this issue. And I think that's going along the lines, along the lines of what you all were talking about. It's was just like, like talking around what you really want to say, which is just like, you know, it's like a lot of crime out there. Like instead of saying that, like, oh, you know, it might not be the best thing, like it might not be safe. So I did get a lot of those messages like, before I came
1: here. So with all that being said, um, I'd like to transition a little bit into how these experiences impacted like your priorities as professors. Last week on the episode about Diversity Day, we talked about the important influence that professors and faculty have in shaping their courses and influencing students. Um, I know that there's surely some sort of curriculum that you have to talk about, or there's some sort of oversight. But I feel like also professors have a lot of freedom to incorporate. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. You can you can um, debate that, but. On that note, what are some things that you can do inside the classroom to ensure that students feel included and represented?
4: I because I'm not in the classroom, but I do have a platform. I I like to make my views known, mm-hmm. not not necessarily to well, yeah, to teach people, but but to to really to show, you know, to send out a signal that I'm an ally yeah, and, and to set an example for others that, oh, well, if she's doing that. Well, maybe I should think about that. You know, I, does that make sense? Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, right. And so I try to host events, um, you know, and send messages that get people to think. And one of the easiest things for me to focus on is the cultural competency aspect of a medical school application, but it applies to all tracks. Um, Instead of just thinking about culture in the sense of different countries, you know, (laughs) I like them to think about different cultures and subcultures even within one country, you know, black, white, rich, poor, Hispanic, um, different languages, being a son or daughter of an immigrant, all of those groups, I guess, have a different experience, and for a health professional, they need to be able to recognize that each individual has inherent worth regardless of all of that baggage. And um, and so, yeah, the cultural competency series that the clubs co-host with me is, is part of that message.
1: Yeah, that's great.
4: We know these things and we behave in a way that doesn't perpetuate racism, but it's not enough. Right. And silence is... Consent, right? And oh, I, that was like smacked me in the face. <laughs> I'm It's like, okay, we got to be really vocal.
2: So, I mean, I will say I am in an interesting position because my discipline lends itself to actively having these conversations, and I don't, I don't have to work like add it into a curriculum. It just, it is the curriculum yeah. in many ways. So, I mean, I teach our sociology of race and ethnicity, sociology of gender and sexuality health disparities, um, medical social, mm-hmm. which is why Dr. Bo Gris and I end up um, chatting a lot. <laughs> um, and so, I th- in intro to sociology, right? And so I think for me, of course, in what they learn, and I share similar things as I'm sharing here today, kind of contextualizing where I am, because I think it's really important for students to understand where so many of us are, um, faculty included, is not where we started. Um, and it, it is important that we keep Challenging ourselves, challenging our own narratives, right? Um, challenging, I mean, even since my time at Mercer, I've had to go, oh, check yourself. You know, like, you know, we all actually want the same thing, which is just to live a life that we feel good about, right? And whatever that good. And certainly our society doesn't make it easy for everyone to have that, right? And we can think of that locally, nationally, globally we're not necessarily great at making sure, right, everyone at least has enough. As a professor, we have a really cheesy term called the sociological imagination, but it's encouraging everyone to think about themselves in relation to society and that we are all interconnected, but also in relation to history, right? So things we do now in the context of history make no sense, right? And I think it connects with allyship in the sense of if I can just get a student in an interaction to slow down and go. Oh, but I remember that one time where that professor said something like, "Don't we all have you know?" Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then, given my content that I teach, I can do more explicit, right? So teaching about structural inequality and and explicitly racism um, and homophobia or homonegativity, right, um, in my gender and sexuality class. And so I mean, I can really get into the nuance of the topics in addition to the overall framing. Um, But in my classrooms, the other thing I really try to do, and I think this is where I view myself as ongoing, um, do the work, figure it out, is creating a classroom environment where all my students feel they are welcome there in the sense of they see themselves represented in either the readings or the contents or the narratives, or I create space for them to, to question and ask um, and actually, I did a podcast oh, this summer, which feels like a lifetime ago, and also yesterday, um, <laughs> with Dr. Vicki Luther in the School of Education. And her and I just talked about that more, uh, I won't say basic, but the, the broader foundation of building a classroom where students, not just where everyone can come in, right? Because all of our students can enroll in our classes, but where students feel like they're a part of it, right? And there's so many ways you can build that. From how you craft your syllabus and the language you carefully use, so I'm really big on pronouns and keeping them neutral um, in my language. But that's something that I've, you know, developed over time and been more mindful about. Um, I haven't always, right, been mindful about that. Um, so that was again making an active decision to go, okay, you you can do better here, right? You can you can do better and um, listen to students and the feedback. Um, I also think as professors, it's our responsibility that when the student gives us some feedback, even if it's critical, that we sit with it, um, and that if it if there's truth in it, that we go, okay, yeah, <laughs> right, you know, and rather than, you know, kind of this top-down power, like, yeah, but I'm the professor, so, you know, <laughs> pish-posh. Um, I mean, there is a time and a place for that, because sometimes it's like, I know you hate reading, but guess what, you're reading all those papers, because <laughs> um, we need to cover that. Um, but I think that's another way to be inclusive, right? To have to create an environment where students trust you. Um, I do think I, that's one of the things I work through in my classrooms is create an environment where students feel like they can talk to me in the sense of they trust me enough that they can be critical of me, um, or you know, something a reading I assigned or something, and they can question it and they can grapple with it, um, and all of that's done through being mindful in the classroom about how I'm responding to students and engaging with them. And then that opens the door for growth all around because if they see me as someone they can chat with, then we can work through th- conversations. Um, so, for example, I taught gender and sexuality. Gosh, was it my first year here? Um, and as other faculty, when they're listening to us, will know, sometimes we are sliding into prep and we're picking text and right. We don't have all the time we want to have, and so I had picked a core textbook that I felt pretty good about. You know, I had gone through. Um, but probably hadn't been as critical of as I would have if I had you know, a little bit more time and it wasn't my first year here with an infant at home. And it, there was some outdated language in relation to transgender um, individuals in there that was, for some generations, right, what they were still talking about, but for younger generations that identify as trans, certainly more derogatory language. Mm. And so I had a student bring it up and say, I, I cannot believe this term's in the textbook. Um, and I said, neither can I. You know, I that's on me um, and I you know I could have just been like well it is you know and that's mm-hmm. it and so I ended up reaching out to the textbook author who I knew as a scholar um, within social gender to be very you know well known um, and she and I said actually we're revising because we know it's problematic and then she had a narrative with my class um, and it ended up being this full scope moment where I could model to my students the teaching moment of this is why this is problematic this is why it should have been addressed and here's right a scholar you know, editing an entire book to edit that out because they knew it was outdated language. And so, right, it could have gone a really different way. And I still, obviously, I still think about it because I'm talking about it. Um, but it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, it matters how I respond to this. And sometimes allyship in the classroom doesn't look like the perfect model and we get it all from the outset. It looks how we respond when issues do arise. Um, and I think all of us can do that. We can be mindful with our, our responses. Um and
4: listening to student voices. Um, and that's just one example. Well but yeah. it's, it's really funny. I don't mean to take any of your yeah, time, no. but it's really funny that the description of building the trust and 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 being completely open and honest. Wouldn't that be the ideal patient-doctor relationship? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that, that's <laughs> <You know> so <laughs> yeah. we'll write a paper. <laughs> I'll throw it over to you. Okay.
5: So yeah. um Yeah, this is really great stuff. Um, (laughs) uh, When I was a kid, one of my first jobs was as a baseball umpire and i had it in my head when i was in college that the best professors were umpires they were referees and they would be objective right they would be objective and fair and that they would never try to impose their own politics on students and it wasn't until grad school that i started to read some of the critical pedagogy authors that i realized that um there's a lot of good in trying to be an umpire but there's also a lot that it misses And so for me, part of it is kind of finding the healthy relationship between the moments when you need to be an umpire and you need to be fair and the moments when you need to be an activist. And um, Carol had shared that silence is consent. Mm. And I think there are moments where you can't be neutral right there are certain topics where you shouldn't be neutral and anti-racism is one of those topics where you can't be the umpire and say all right i'm going to wash my hands of this right it's a um, if we're using a, a christian metaphor you can't be conscious pilot washing your hands of it and saying this isn't my problem i don't have to deal with it right yeah. um, because otherwise history is going to judge you and say you got blood on your hands okay. and so um i, I like to get my students involved in this. And so I, you know, in one of my classes uh, for public speaking, I have them take up this conversation and I have them talk about what kind of professors do you want? Do you want the people who are neutral and objective? And they all start there. And then I share a historic example. I say there were, you know, faculty members at Mercer that were part of the push to integrate Mercer, right? And they organized students and they talked in their classes. Was it okay for them to bring that into the classroom even though it was political and you know all of the students are okay with that right in that moment they're like yes yes of course it was okay and having sam only come and having faculty be involved for a struggle to do that was important so um, i think that we have to be respectful of trying to be umpires for a lot of the issues and make sure that we bracket our own parochial Partisan interests. But I also think that there are moments when we have to be activists when being neutral means taking sides. And so for me, a lot of the classroom is finding the right balance between those.
1: Well, I like that metaphor a lot because I, I, I've had professors um, be like, Well, I don't want to get into my own views here. And it's like, Actually, I think. Like the power dynamic that's created in a classroom, what the professor does really sets the tone. Um, I think that's interesting that understanding your role as a professor and the influence that you it's have. Funny
4: that um, I have two instances that pop into my mind where students came to me to express dismay, complain, if you will, um, <laughs> about a professor <clears throat> forcing their views on them, and and I think that you know, the reality is probably not they were forcing their views; they were they were voicing their views and right. because they were so opposite they felt attacked yeah and right. and they were both related to elections
1: mm, yep, do it. <laughs> yeah. so yeah. on the note of creating a Inclusive classroom environment. I have a little surprise for you guys. Are you guys familiar with Rate My Professor?
5: Oh, yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, I don't like it. But I, I
1: don't it.
5: I remember it was popular 15 years ago. Is <laughs>
1: I've met Dr. Cummings, I've heard from both Dr. Booker and Dr. Simon, but didn't know you guys super well, and I was like, what kind of professors are we having on oh the podcast today? You guys, of s- all the professors, I'm like not even saying this for the podcast, have some of the most amazing, you have, um, from like 2007, you have reviews on like, my professor, you <laughs> guys have some of the nicest things that students yeah. have said about you. So I don't know if you guys have seen this segment, which it's like, Maybe one of the late night shows. Mean tweets. Reading <laughs> tweets. I have Dr. Simon's here first, so if you just read this and then oh, swipe. I have to read. Yeah, oh read my it gosh. Okay. And then swipe to
2: the next, and they're both about you. Okay. Uh, this is all right. This is actually really hard. So she is an amazing professor who is passionate about her subject, learning new things, and helping her students succeed. She has high expectations for her students, but also understands that we have other things going on, or may struggle with certain aspects of her class, such as writing. She will work with you and do her best to help you do well.
1: That's very nice. <laughs>
2: so Dr. Simon is an amazing professor who really cares about her students. Her personality is very easygoing, but she does expect a lot in class. She's known for, known for giving out a lot of A's. Okay. But expects <laughs> to see you try hard in class, even if you don't quite get the concepts.
1: Very true of theory class. So I think I don't know who's... Dr. Dr. Like, Bob is. is. Okay. 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 So like that's something that... It doesn't matter, like I don't know if a white student wrote this, I don't know if it was a male, a female, a black student, what, but whatever it is, they feel included in your class and they know that um, it's a safe space. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to get at here. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Bocros. Dr. Bocros.
4: <laughs> Dr. Bocros is the best thing that has ever happened to Mercer's mm-hmm. science department. That's too funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. She makes songs so that you can remember things, and she truly cares about all of, your, all of her students. She is reasonable and willing to help. I love her, and I recommend her to anyone in Scientific Inquiry, which no longer exists, uh, Bio 21-212 and Bio 2.03. I remember all those songs. Yes. Yeah, mnemonic devices are fabulous. Dr. Bogros is the best. Oh, my gosh. She is always so excited to teach and makes lecture and lab a lot of fun. She is also very helpful and approachable. I always looked forward to her class because it was never dry or boring. <laughs> I would re- recommend her to anyone who wants to learn biology while having a good time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. you could, if you just swipe to the next one. The Thank fact you, that... students. My goodness. <laughs> and no one forces, I mean, I've never written a review on my professor because We have to do the course evals already, and I'm just like... And we read those. Right. Well, no, I put a lot of effort into (laughs) my course evals, Um, but the fact that they want to write my professor to say these things, I think says a lot. All right,
5: Dr. Cummings. All right. Dr. Cummings was one of the most thoughtful people I have ever met, regardless of profession. Dr. Cummings tells amazing stories to help relate the material to one's own life. I can honestly say that Dr. Cummings is someone I could sit across from and have a genuine conversation with. I would take Dr. Cummings again without any doubt in my mind.
4: That's so cool. <laughs>
5: Dr. Cummings is extremely helpful and extremely intelligent. I enjoy every minute of his class, and he treats his students just like his peers. He doesn't look down on anyone mm-hmm. and wants to hear from everyone. He loves class discussions and is very helpful. I highly recommend him, best teacher ever.
1: Wow. 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 See, yeah, so cool. yeah. Yes, for you guys. I think it's so refreshing having professors who, I'd like, these speak to you guys as professors using your platform to make students feel included. Um, I wasn't trying to get all sentimental or anything. But i <laughs> too late. So I mean, Kenya, I don't know if you can attest to it, the importance.
3: Yeah. Um, and shout out to like I guess the entire women and gender studies department anyways, because um, I wanted to like mention Dr. Fleming. I think she's mm-hmm. like really awesome. I'm taking her um gendered lives class now. And I think she does a great job of um like creating like a very like safe space and environment where well. like we can have like great discussions and conversations without Like worrying about oh am I saying the right thing or will she take this the right way and I think that's like that's very important especially um for like a black student at a PWI like I can like openly say and since I'm from the south like I've been able to like say things in certain classes that I probably wouldn't be able to say like if I was like back in high school having like a regular discussion Mm. and I think this being I think that means a lot for someone that's like not used to like being able to share their experiences that like some may consider like controversial like political or visual just like my life so just being able to like share that it's been like kind of cool
2: can i just say like what you just said there like people think it's controversial but it's your life like that's at the root of it right (laughs) like that's not i don't know when people's experiences became quote-unquote controversy but i think yeah any spaces we can create where people are like, no, Um, it's so powerful and important. Um, And I'm so glad you have that space in Dr. Fleming's class.
1: So now that we've touched on being supportive inside the classroom, um, we only have a little bit of time left. So I'd love to wrap up with maybe ideas that you can not only support students, but promote um, the sort of anti-racism or diversity, just inclusivity outside of the classroom. Um, whether that be like activities that you promote. Um, I know Dr. Booker's mm-hmm. can speak a of that. Also just like mentoring, supportive of your students, just both in and out of the classroom. I'll go first again. Okay.
4: Because I've already t- told you about the things I do outside. So the only thing I wanted to add was um, showing up, uh, you know, when there are diversity day parties, mm-hmm. which is the best party ever, by the way, <laughs> um, or, um, you know, a special event about, Palestinians or or whatever it is, you know, learning about uh, Islam, show up. Right. I, I think that's. It, it sounds so basic, but it sends a huge message that it matters. Whatever they're talking about matters, and that you care about them.
2: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I will echo that. Um, unfortunately, having two kids at home, my event schedule <laughs> is a little. Um, But when I have been able to attend events, and I want to go to all of them, and actually Zoom has made it really nice because I'll tune in and have kids in the back. (laughs) Everything's muted, we're good. But um, I have been so shocked by the times I've gone to a specific event, and I've had a student come up and be like, thank you so much for being here, and I'm like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, just like and I'm I'm like of, of course. But then I look around and I might be one of two, right, professors in the room on this big event that, you know, is you know, linked to a student group or something. Um and I think that really because I already know I've talked about it with my spouse, and once the kids get a little bit older, like I'm going to more of these events. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like like just once we're not in such a grind of family life. Um my Uh, (laughs) three-year-old, but I also think, and that kind of links to this allyship, I share things like that with my students, my honorary three-year-old and my my teenager and my daughter, who's, you know, maybe if we took her up to Atlanta, would get a sitcom of her own, like she's just pure (laughs) magic and, you know, um, when she wants to be. Uh, And so, you know, I think sharing parts of ourselves I mean that shouldn't be the bulk of your class right we all know that as faculty but i think giving little information about yourself that's important to you Mm -hmm. is a good way to help students recognize that they can in turn right share with you and i think that's that's in the classroom but it's out of the classroom too um so i've worked with students before um and they're very aware right like okay dr simon like i need a meeting but i know you can't do it in the evenings (laughs) you got and so it's just like these conversations and so i've already there doesn't need to be an meet- email where I'm like, I don't meet in the evenings, right? It's just, <laughs> I know you don't meet in the evenings, so here's some times, right, Dr. Simon. And that's, I do a lot of mentoring, both via advising um, and via just, like, helping students through tough things. Um, this semester and for the past year, well, even not COVID times, on and off, <laughs> I've been working with research students, um, yeah. and that's another great way. So, as a social scientist on campus, a lot of our undergraduate research opportunities are linked to bio and chem and physics. And so, I have some research that I'm doing and I'm collecting data. I've been very intentional, and this is linked to my teaching, but it is, I've been intentional about creating space for students that don't align with the biochem, et cetera, backgrounds to have opportunities for research. Um, so, for example, I'm doing the Mercer Undergraduate Research Symposium this summer. Um, I am the social scientist. Uh, so, uh, so I mean, that's like, I view that as mentoring as much as I view it as thank goodness I'm going to have students helping me transcribe these focus groups, uh, the focus <laughs> group data I collected. But also, my research is linked to student well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, right now, I'm looking at COVID and processes um, and, and the the quantitative or the survey data, um, I know I'll unpack some inequities right, and look at racial and gender experiences. And so I feel like part of what perhaps comes through to students is that I really have tried to interweave allyship through my teaching into my research and just into my general life. Um, and so Completely separate from Mercer, right? It's conversations. It's creating open doors. It's walking a student over to CAPS, right? It's you know, it's just those. I think though, it doesn't have to be big and huge. And like, I spent, you know, an entire year doing this. It can be the little, the little moments going, showing up to the event. I think is huge. Um, I when students email me that they're dealing with something, I always set a reminder. To, well, now they're gonna know. Um, <laughs> I, I set a little reminder to myself to email them later and make sure they're okay. So um, and it's just like the, I, there, or like the other day I was on Zoom and a student just didn't look quite themselves and we were doing the group discussions. They're super, like, usually super engaged. So just in the chat, I was like, hey, you okay baby?" And they're like, yeah, like, I'm good, but, like, this is, this <laughs> like, is the really fact weird. that you weren't just, like, pay attention. I was like, no, like, you are normally pay attention. Oh. Um, so I think little things like that, and I I guess that approach is driven by, I have decided actively to, again, try to manage my own implicit bias, right, and just assume that everyone's doing their best, and I know sometimes that's not true,
1: Um,
2: but what does it hurt me to just make the assumption that everyone's doing the best they can, Um, and if they really get me, right, and they could have had that assignment, or whatever, um, well, then okay, Um, I'm good, and I think, I think students, when I am that way, they tend to, Respond to it, the, the comments saying I have high expectations and stuff, mm-hmm. I think is important, right? That you can have high, expe- high expectations, but it's really important then to add in the support yeah. to help your students get there. Um, I think, yeah, I, I could go on, but I'm not sure I even address the core no, question. Absolutely. So, okay. Well. I think showing
1: students <laughs> that you aren't, like, in a classroom, you can be an ally because you have to, mm-hmm. but outside of the classroom, no one's making you do that. So the fact that you're doing that intentionally, showing up for students, emailing them about how they're doing, it really does create that inclusive environment. And actually, I did take your The I did the survey oh, yeah. um, <laughs> relating to well-being, and mm-hmm. I could tell it was very intentional about like questions that I wish that we could talk about in class. I wish I think everyone's really going through it right now, mm-hmm. and I could tell that um, where you're going with your research was like very. You didn't have to research the, those things you chose to, and so I think those are definitely. Really important ways to show that, but maybe five minutes before this this runs out. So, Dr. So yeah. Comey, yeah, take minutes.
5: it away. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, I think it's some of the real basic things that we can do for them as students is try to help them to get to conferences, help mm-hmm. them apply mm-hmm. for scholarships and fellowships and other things like that, and. Um, Part of sending them to conference is helping them to find their voice. So if we have a class on gender and communication or race and communication, having them take that research and say, this is important enough that it deserves to be shared with a academic audience outside of the classroom can do a lot for them. Um, I also think that um, both of of my colleagues are absolutely correct that presence matters. And there are especially flashpoint moments when there is a call for people to be there. And in those moments, it's especially important. And so um, I remember when I came here, Mercer went through an interesting thing where they shut down the LGBTQ club organization for a year, right? And um, in that moment, the faculty members helped to um, deal with students who were in a really awkward place um, while the university was negotiating its split from the Georgia Baptist Convention. And then they helped to reorganize it, right? And um, just trying to be there in that moment mattered Um, we've probably had a dozen flashpoint moments and um, I don't know if everyone can be there for every one of those flashpoint moments um, but it helps and every time you can be there for one where uh, there is a struggle to defend the dignity and worth of our students whether it's um, for our trans students or whether it's for um, a mural that's been erased Mm -hmm. or whether it's for something else that that those matter and as much as possible um, having faculty members give voice to those concerns shows that that we think that those matter and um, we probably can't be there for for every moment but every time that we're there every time that one or two of us or three or four of us are um, posting attending having a presence it kind of matters and uh, the more that we share with each other that that we're impressed by our colleagues who do that the better it is so um, and I think that our students notice that I think that my colleagues are absolutely right that um, if you can attend events and if you can be there in the moments when they need you that that matters and so um i also have kids who are now grown and so uh, it's, it's freed up a little bit right. more space yeah. uh, to try to be there a little bit more i think that that's a really good goal
4: this is a work in progress mm-hmm. so not, just because we try all the time doesn't mean i make it 100% of the time as but right, you know but at least we're you're trying can, consciously, consciously. Yeah. I mean, none of us are
1: I, same thing i think we can all say that it's a work in progress. All right, well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for this week. Um, Thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been such an inspiring and refreshing conversation, and I'm really glad that all three of you could make it. Um, If you liked what you heard this week, make sure you tune in next week for our last episode of Mercer Mondays for the semester. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.